I don't agree with Karl Marx in his intent, but he said something I do agree with when he said, philosophers have only interpreted the world differently. The point, however, is to change it. And I agree with that. Philosophers can differ, but the real issue is, what have you done to change the world in which you live? Change seems to be one of the key ingredients to the gospel message. And if there's one thing that God projects in His Word is that He's powerful to change you, to take you from where you are and to make you what He wants you to be. My mind goes back to the summer of 1973 when I saw dramatic changes take place in my life. My friends told me about Christ. Gina was one of them. He told me that I ought to become a Christian. I saw no need for I already was one because I went to church, I thought as I was taking a puff on my joint. I ran away from those who were sharing the gospel with me, went up to the Bay Area, up in the San Jose, California area. And it was a summer of tension. It was a summer of uncertainty. I wrestled with my future. I got extremely bored. And it was during that time that the Lord touched my heart and I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior in July right around the time of my physical birthday, became the time of my spiritual birthday. The moment I said, Lord, I don't know why you want to save me. It seems like you're getting a rotten deal. I mean, it seems like I'm getting a great deal. You want to give me eternal life, abundant life, salvation, brothers and sisters in the Lord, the security of knowing you, a relationship with Jesus Christ. And in exchange, I'm giving you sin, corruption, a bad life, a problemed person. Why do you want to do this? But I didn't question it too far. I just accepted it. And I saw changes. Immediately I sensed a load of guilt leaving me. I felt brand new. I felt like I had been born again and given a new start. And I wanted to tell people about it. Well, that was just the beginning of a series of changes that has not stopped. And I have found that God is interested in making me like His Son Jesus, conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That, that's a chunk of work to make me like Jesus. And some of you know me go, you betcha that's a big work. I'd say that about you as well. But God's committed to that. And what happened, He continues to perform until the day of Jesus Christ. God is never satisfied with a plateau in your life, and neither should you be. You should never reach a place where you go, I have arrived. I am spiritual. In fact, I'm more spiritual than they are. That will spell your demise. And so God is always changing us, or wanting to, by His Word, by the trials of our lives, to mold us into His image. Acts chapter 16 is a chapter of change. There's three personalities we see emerge. A businesswoman named Lydia, a demon-possessed slave girl, and a government worker, a Philippian jailer. Different backgrounds, different personalities, different occupations, and yet all of them were changed by the word and the power of the gospel. And God began a great work in Philippi that he continued years after. If you were to think about your life in the last ten years, perhaps you don't even resemble the same person you did ten years ago. If that's true, that's good. You've changed. You've changed the way you think. You've changed your perspective, your opinion. That's good. It's bad when you want to keep things the way they are. It's good if God changes you and you become more mature. 
There's a story in the Old Testament that I love to apply to our lives. There's a story in the book of Jeremiah where God says, Jerry or Jeremiah, go down to the potter's house and I will cause you to hear my words. So Jeremiah went to the potter's house and he said, I saw a potter working a work on the wheel, taking a vessel and turning it on the potter's vessel. But it says that little vessel was marred in the hands of the potter. It just had a flaw in it. And instead of leaving it that way and say, oh, it's imperfect, toss it out, or just, it's good enough, it'll sell. It says that he made it again into another vessel. And if you've ever watched a potter work with fresh clay, it's quite an education. In fact, you really haven't finished your Bible education until you see this. It's great to watch somebody work a work on the wheel and you look at it from a, a distance and you think, yeah, that's great. The, the potter looks at it and it's a frown with furrowed eyebrows and thinks, it's not good. And you're thinking, don't mess with it. Leave it alone. And all of a sudden the potter goes, <coughs> crushes it, puts water on it again, and makes it into a new vessel. But you step back and alas, that vessel that you thought was so beautiful is much more beautiful now that it's been remade by the potter. Changes that occur. That's where God is at with you and with me. You can look back to a point of reference. You call it the day you were saved. Maybe you ask, like the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? And at that point, when you believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you were saved, changes took place, but they continue to take place in your lives. Back in chapters um, 15 and 16, actually the beginning of 16, Paul got a calling to go to Macedonia. Just as a little bit of a background, remember he tried to go to different places, and what happened? The Holy Spirit wouldn't let him go. God forbid him. And so he went over to Macedonia because he had a vision one night as he was on hold in a holding pattern, wondering, what is the will of God for my life? He got a vision of a man from Macedonia who said, Psst, come over here and help us. And he concluded, this thing is from the Lord. Let's hit it, boys. And they went over to Macedonia. When they got to Macedonia, they didn't have crowds waiting. They didn't have PR people setting the crusades up in advance and having the stadium ready and the speakers ready. They didn't even find a synagogue. There weren't even ten Jewish men in the city. And so they went out to the river where Lydia and a few other women were meeting. And they began a small but notable work. After they were through with the women at the river, there was a demon-possessed girl who followed them around and started chanting, These are the servants of the Most High God. Listen to them. And Paul got fed up with his gal and just cast the demon out of her. And because the trade was heard in the city, because this girl, who they were using for profit, was saved, it changed their profit status, and so they threw him into prison. And there's Paul and Silas in chains in prison. Probably Silas was looking at Paul thinking, you know what, next time you say you got a vision from God, forget it, pal. I'm going to pray about it myself. I'm not going to rely on you hearing from God. I'm going to hear from God for myself. Look, at we came over here and we're in jail. Perhaps he was thinking that, but not for long, because around midnight, the soldiers heard an incredibly strange sound from one of the cells. At midnight, they heard, Hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. And the prisoners were singing worship songs at midnight to God. 
And everybody in the jail listened. The Greek word is they paid attention. It's a rare Greek word that said basically they were on the edges of their seat, their mouths were open, and they were wondering, why on earth would a joyful sound be heard in this prison? Because they were used to cursing and moans and groans and I didn't do it. It's unfair that I'm in here. I'm going to die. But they heard praise music at midnight. Here are people following Jesus, being thrown into prison for it, thanking God. They had joy. They didn't just endure with their teeth grit. They had joy in the midst of it. A lot of us are thinking, I can't relate. And yet joy is a byproduct of the Christian life, isn't it? Now when we speak of joy, we're not speaking about high spirits, good-heartedness, a feeling of happiness. We're speaking about something that goes beyond the outward circumstances. We're all happy when things go our way. But to have joy in the midst of adversity is a fruit of the Spirit and can only be worked in us by the Holy Spirit. When Paul was writing the book of Philippians from a Roman jail, from one jail to the next, he had quite an extensive prison ministry. He said, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And he said, here I am in prison. And I... If it were up to me to make a choice to die, to kick the bucket, to end my life and go to heaven, or to stay here on earth, I don't know what I'd choose. It's a quandary for me, because on one hand, I'd like to just die and be with Christ, which is far better than the suffering. But it's more needful, I believe, to stay here and be a minister and a servant to you. So he says, you know, whether God takes my life or I keep it, I'm just, I'm going to glorify the Lord. And he had a great freedom of joy. Now, in verse 31, which is one of the key verses in this chapter, and probably one you should commit to memory. In verse 30, he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes, and immediately he and all of his family were baptized. And when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all of his household. There's a uh, an important little nugget that I don't want to pass over because I get questions about it all the time, and I hear people making reference to verse 31, I believe, wrongly. It says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and all of your household. And this is how I've heard it interpreted. If you get saved, it is a guarantee that everybody in your family will follow suit and they'll all become Christian. That's not what the verse teaches. Not at all. The key word there is the word believe. That's the hinge. And if you look at it that way, you see that you don't get saved by proxy. You get saved by individual repentance and coming to know Jesus Christ on your own. It's been well said, God has no grandchildren, only children. You can't say, well, my grandparents and my mom and dad, they're believers, therefore I'm okay. No, you're not. If you're of age to make a choice, you must decide to follow or reject Jesus Christ, and the decision weighs squarely upon your choice. So believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, and your household, in other words, they'll be saved if they believe. How do I know that? Because in verse 34, it says, Having believed in God with all of his household. 
Because his household believed, they were baptized, showing that they were saved. But the key word is believed. This is not an automatic salvation. If you get saved, all of a sudden everybody in your family is going to become a Christian. That's not what it says. Now we began and had to cut last week. This whole idea of salvation. And it's so important, I want to get back to it. Because in this discussion of chapter 16, there is an important teaching on what a real Christian is. There's a lot of debate around today. I want to bring up some of that debate tonight from some of your backgrounds, from different denominations and teaching. Different theologians are discussing today what a real Christian is. Are you a Christian if you believe in Jesus? Or are you a Christian if you believe in Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord? And there's lots of debate about that. Not that I'm going to clear it up. I'm just going to give you both sides. But this chapter, and particularly this section, gives to us the three needed things for anybody to be saved. There's three things for salvation that are necessary. First of all, the recognition of a need. You can never talk a hungry person into a meal. You don't need to. Just offer it to them. Say, here's a meal. Great. They'll chomp on it. They know their need. Their stomach is empty. You give them a hamburger, they'll woof it down. But a person who's just eaten a meal and has to unbutton that top button and the belt and stretch, for you to offer him a meal it will do him no good. He doesn't see his need. And really, he doesn't have a need. Probably for a week he wouldn't have a need. But only people who know that they're sinners know that they need a Savior. It's been called by psychologists a felt need. It's a good title. Or an expressed need. Something's wrong in my life. I'm not complete. I need something more. I'm on a search. The Philippian jailer was on his knees, ready to commit suicide. He was going to kill himself. And Paul had to say, don't do yourself any harm. We haven't escaped. And in fear and terror, he said, what must I do to be saved? He recognized his need. Anybody in that condition is near to salvation. Anybody who's on his knees wondering about how can I fill this void is very close to coming to know Christ. And you need to have a need. I worry about the self-sufficient, not the people who think, oh man, I'm so needy. But I worry about the self-sufficient people who pat themselves on the back and like to recite their own record. You meet them all the time. When you say, hey, come to my church Thursday night. I don't need to. I'm a good person. Oh, do you know Jesus Christ? I've always been a Christian. I've been raised in America. I'm not Muslim. I'm not Hindu. I'm not a New Ager. I'm a nice person. And they're patting themselves on the back. They don't recognize that they have a need. Everybody has a need. Some are oblivious to it. But everyone has one. Charles Finney. I read a book years ago called The Autobiography of Charles Finney. The greatest, perhaps, revivalist and preacher that has ever hit the American continent. He was a lawyer in upstate New York. A cocky, arrogant, intellectual lawyer. Not that all of them are, but this one was. And I told you the story how he would go to prayer meetings and they say, would you like us to pray for you, Mr. Finney? And he said, no, your prayers are absolutely useless. I don't want you to pray for me. You pray for revival in this town for years and you have leanness in your own soul. 
Your prayers are worthless. Don't bother. But one day he was taking a walk out in the woods. And he said he was just out in the woods enjoying the fresh air. And something came to him that he'd never experienced. The deep consciousness of his depravity before God. A guy who had made it through law school. Very successful. Had it all made. This overwhelming reality of his filth and dirtiness before God. And his desire to have it cleansed away. And he said he wept. It seemed like for a half a day, but he did not remember the length of time. And he asked Jesus to save his soul because of his wickedness. And then he went to his law study in the evening. And he spent that whole evening before God. And he said, the next day I knew that I was transformed. But he recognized his need. He didn't say, now let me talk myself in or out of this situation. I'm not a bad person. I'm better than the other lawyers in the office. I don't cheat like they do on their income tax. In fact, he didn't do any of that. He recognized his own conscious need and turned to Christ. There is, I don't know if you know this or not, a biography written about you. It was written 2,000 years ago. It paints a picture of your life. Though it doesn't have your name in it or my name in it, it's a painting that accurately describes your life and your need. It's written about in Romans chapter 3. It goes like this. There is no one who is righteous. No, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've altogether become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Is That's interesting, because people will say, I'm good. Well, maybe good in your definition, but compare yourself to God's goodness. Remember the man who said, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, why do you call me good? There's only one good but God. The definition of goodness isn't according to you, but to him. Uh, it goes on to say, and again, I'm quoting the scripture. I hope you're not too offended by its bluntness. But in painting the picture, it says their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world is held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In other words, we need help big time. And we need help outside of ourselves. We can't go buy a self-help course. Education won't cut it. We need a source outside of ourselves because we're desperately trapped by our own need. When there is the consciousness of that need, that's the first step. I'm empty, I need. Okay, what do we do once we recognize that need? The second step is the Savior must step in. You could be in need all of your life, but unless there's someone able to help your condition, you're toast. You're sunk. What if you went to a hospital? I'll give you an example that's better than this. I actually had this happen. I was driving through our fair state one summer. I took the wrong turn, and instead of going to White Sands, Alamogordo, I ended up in Las Cruces. Not that that's all bad, because I turned around and came back up. As I was going up the road to the metropolitan area of Carrizoso, 
My car stalled in the middle of the road. It was a hot day, probably over 100. And uh, we're talking um, the backside of the moon. It looked like a lunar surface. There was no one there. Uh, it was abandoned. And uh, I thought, all right, I'm stuck. What do I do? To make it worse, my son was newly born. He's in the back seat, and he had gotten sick on the road. He was vomiting with a high temperature. Now, I'm the father, and I'm feeling very responsible at this moment and very guilty. He had a need, and I had a need, and I was very in touch with my need. You didn't have to convince me of it. I knew I had a need. i got to get my car fixed and my son to a doctor. A truck driver gave us a ride into town and uh, finally got the car into town. The guys looked at it and said, I don't think we can fix this. There's really not any parts, but a couple days we can get them. And I said, well, is there a doctor in town? They kind of looked at me and they laughed. I mean, there's no doctor in town? He goes, well, there's a nurse that travels between this town and the next town once a week. Great. I had a need, but there was no one to come in to meet that need at that point. And so I might have a great need and be in touch with it, but unless someone is able and fitted and trained to take care of the need, it will do a person no good. That's where Jesus comes. Because the Bible says that we're empty before God. We have a need like the Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? And Paul had an answer for him. He didn't have to say, well, we have a temporary Savior that travels between this town and the next town from time to time. He was able to say quickly, swiftly, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and all of your household. And so he believed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and he was saved immediately at that point. And so the scripture says, God presented Jesus Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Through faith in his blood, he did this to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus fits the job description. We're dirty and he can wash. We have sins and his business is to cleanse people from sin. So the person is fitted perfectly to the need. The job description is someone who can be fitted to save. Jesus can come along and pay the ransom. And we just read in Romans, as I quoted it to you, that he comes to justify the ungodly. You can ask several people how to define justify, and they'll give you different answers. The most common answer, though it sounds good, is incomplete. Most people say, well, the, the concept justification means just if I'd never sinned. In other words, when you're justified, it's just as if you'd never sinned. Well, it's more than that. That stops short. What it really means is this. You're a sinner, you're filthy, you're hopeless. Yet, Jesus can come in and declare that you are righteous. That's what the word means. He declares that you are righteous because of His work on the cross. And so He can wipe away your sin because of His work and declare that you are right before God. In other words, the cross becomes a sponge for your sins. Ever thought about it that way? In one instantaneous moment in history, all of the sins of the world were put upon Jesus Christ. It soaked them up to be obliterated. And yet, 
That's not the complete story. We have two elements so far, but not the third. You need to be in touch with your need. You need a Savior who's fitted to save to take away your sins, but you must then respond. And that's where we left off last week. You see your need. You recognize God's provision. And then you respond to it. You see, grace, although it's unmerited favor, must be accepted. The law in our country demands that a pardon is not a pardon until the criminal accepts it. And a criminal can deny it. No, I won't deny it. I am guilty. I want to die. He has that right. He can declare himself guilty even though he can be acquitted. So the pardon must be received. Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him will not perish. And so you must believe in him. You've got to respond. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you'll be saved. But you have to confess. You have to believe in your heart. And that's that third point. You must respond to Him. Now, there's two possible responses to Him. Number one, you can accept it and you can believe it or you can refuse it. And you can reject it. Yes, I believe, God, everything you said. I recognize I'm a sinner. But you can pay for my price. I respond to you right now. Or you can say, nah, not interested. I don't want to become a Jesus freak. I don't want to become like one of them. And you know what? You can go on. And God will allow you to have that response. God gives you free choice. He'll honor your choice. But don't you ever complain, how could a good God send me to hell? He won't. But He'll let you choose. And as one writer carefully put it, I would never send you there, but if you chose to go there, I could never keep you out. God will honor your choice. And so there comes a response. And some people go on and they think that though they're getting by with a lot of stuff, hey, I've been sinning a long time and I never got struck by lightning. Thus I conclude that God is in favor of my life because He's never stopped me before. Have you ever had anyone say that stupid prayer? Well, God, if you want me to stop, then just show me a sign or strike lightning from heaven. God is patient. He'll let you wait and go on and carry it out. And what happens to a lot of people when they make that choice to just go away from God and live their own life, they get a bit cocky. Because they think, I've gotten away with it. God hasn't judged me yet. But they have mistaken the forbearance and the patience and the love of God for getting away with something. You'll never get away with it. Listen, if you're in that position tonight, I'll give you a warning. You have a fatal disease. You're dying of it. It's called sin. You're dying of it. It's terminal. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. There is one who is fitted to save and only one. One mediator between God and man. You say, well, I wonder if I have that disease. Well, if you're not born again, you have it. Actually, we all have it. And I'm no better than you, but I've cast myself upon his solution. That's what makes me saved and you not. Not because I'm any better, certainly not. But he's a big savior and he can wash away my sins and he can do it to you as well. There's a, an old sermon years ago by a man named Peter Marshall. Marshall. Presbyterian minister, one of the greatest preachers of all time. And he had a classic sermon called The Tap on the Shoulder. 
from which a lot of us have used analogies. And he said, if you were walking down the street and someone came up behind you and tapped you on the shoulder, what would you do? Naturally, you'd turn around. Well, that is exactly what happens in the spiritual world. A man walks through life with the external call ringing in his ears, but with no response stirring his heart. And then suddenly, without any warning, the spirit taps him on the shoulder. The tap on the shoulder is the almighty power of God acting without help or hindrance so as to produce a new creature and to lead him into the particular work that God has for him. He was walking along and God tapped him on the shoulder so hard he recognized, I'm in trouble. I need a savior. And he responded by turning around. And the biblical word means repentance. I've turned around. I've changed. I have a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of direction. And that's where the response comes in. Don't get me wrong, and I want to talk about this. You are not saved by works. When you get to heaven, you will not sing, I'm worthy. You won't praise yourself. You'll say, worthy is the lamb who was slain and has purchased us to God out of every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation. You'll be worshiping the Lord for the work that he's done for you. You're not saved by works. But you must respond. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn over their sins and then hunger and thirst for righteousness. Remember that story that Jesus told in the Gospel of Luke? He said two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of everything I possess. Jesus said the other tax collector was so burdened with his sin, he wouldn't even lift up his eyes toward heaven, but he beat himself on the chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said that man was justified. And the Pharisee wasn't. Because he saw a need and he cried out to God for mercy. He responded to the weakness that he saw in his own life. And again, that's the biblical term, repent. It's not a popular word. In fact, it's been done away with in a lot of teachings. Because when you hear the word repent, unfortunately, some people conjure up in their mind images of medieval monks wearing wool robes, putting ashes on their heads, kind of having their shoulders humped and walking down the street like this. Or they think of repentance as necessary for really wicked people. You know, murderers, adulterers, terrorists, mass murderers who kill people slowly. They need to repent. But me? I don't need repentance. I'm good. I would not put myself in that category. Yet, the New Testament is replete with the keynote word, repent. John the Baptist. What a classic. I have always liked John the Baptist because John the Baptist would not be most evangelists likely pick for a front runner. If you were going to do a crusade, an outreach in a particular city. Or let's say you were hired by the Lord to do it. Well, you know, you'd want to say, Jesus, I think, first of all, you ought to go to the best seminaries and get the choicest theologians. 
Not only should they be good in fundamental theology, but they should be articulate in their speech. They should be able to, to grab a crowd and hold a crowd. Then Jesus, after that, you should probably secure two or three or maybe five or six millionaires to support your work when the ministry gets lean. Then it would probably be a good idea to go uh, to UNM and talk to the weight coach and see if you can get uh, some hefty weightlifters, bodyguards, you know. They're always good ushers. Because the religious leaders aren't going to like you, Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees are going to seek to kill you. You need protection. And instead of that, we read about John the Baptist. He dressed inappropriately for the ministry. He had no collar. He was a long hair. He wore camel clothes. I mean, give me a break. He was Mr. Natural. He ate grasshoppers with honey on them. And instead of smooth talk, first word out of his mouth was, Repent, brood of vipers! Who has warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? You don't grow churches that way, effectively. And yet Jesus chose him to be his front runner. And his first message was, Repent. And Jesus' first message publicly was repent. But what a difference that is to modern evangelism. He, Jesus said, in other words, there must be change. And John said, there must be change. If you've come, bring forth fruit that are befitting repentance. And that's oftentimes where the church is lacking. And that's the point, really, of verses 31 through 34 of this chapter. It answers the question, what is a Christian? You know, if you ask that question around the world, you get different answers. If you ask that question in Lebanon, they'd say, well, a Christian is the opposite of a Muslim. And uh, they would say that we have the Christian army and we have the Islamic army. We have the Lebanese army, the Christian army, different types of militia. In other, world, uh, other places, a Christian is simply the opposite of a heathen. A friend of mine this week from back east said... In his part of the world, in the East Coast, there are golf courses that are strictly for Jewish people and others that are strictly for Christian people. It's completely segregated. And that's some people's idea of a Christian. You see, the world has accepted Christ to one degree or another. But that's not what a Christian is. Christian isn't someone who says, I can't hang out with you because you're not like me. I can't golf on your golf course. Christian isn't someone who says, you're not like me, so here's a gun, I'm going to blow your brains out. A Christian isn't someone who's synonymous with being an American. A Christian is someone who is saved by, now here's the word, saving faith. Saving faith. I'll tell you why I brought this up. There's a debate going around. Some of you have heard about it. It's called the debate of lordship salvation. Some people say, I'm saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Other people say, well, no, you're not. It's not enough. You're not saved until Jesus is not only your Savior, but your Lord. And if He's not Lord over every area of your life, then hey, you're not saved at all. And so people draw theological battle lines, and they fight each other. Now, I'm going to throw you a trick question. Do you know that you're saved by works? Do you believe you are? You are but not by your works, the works of another. 
Now, don't misunderstand that. You're saved by the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross for you, but that will produce something within you when you accept it. The debate goes way back to the times of Romanism, Roman Catholicism, and the Reformation. When Martin Luther started battling against the theology of the hierarchy of the church, because the church traditionally taught that faith plus works equals salvation. I was taught that growing up. I would go to my elders, my superiors, and say, am I going to heaven? And they had a tough time answering that. It was funny to hear them talk about it. And it's basically, we don't know. Well, can I ever know? Well, yeah, when you die, you'll find out. All right. Isn't that a little late to find out? Couldn't I do something about it in advance to prepare for that event? Well, if you believe and you do enough good works and you find out that it's good before God, then you'll get there. But no one was ever sure. In the Great Reformation period, when Martin Luther started seeing, hey, there's some fallacy in the theology, instead of faith plus works equals salvation, the equation became faith equals Salvation or justification plus works. And they had a saying back then. We are saved or justified. Justification is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Now, catch my drift, okay? When you come to know Jesus Christ, you have nothing. You can't offer anything to be saved. You have to receive it as a free gift. And by faith alone... You say, Jesus, be my Savior. I see a need. I see your provision. I respond right now. Save me. You are saved instantly at that moment. Not by any works, but a miracle happens inside your heart. A new nature, a quickening. Jesus called it being born again. It's like a brand new birth, a brand new start. At that moment, a seed grows in your heart. You're never going to be more saved or less saved. You're saved, but... There are degrees, certainly, of sanctification and becoming like Jesus. But if a person is genuinely saved by faith, that faith will produce works. They'll produce works. It will grow. So if a person says, I am saved, and there's a great number of people who claim that they are saved, but their life is completely and utterly void of any verifying works, And I question a person's salvation. Because when you come to know Christ, there's something that is produced within you that makes you want to be holy, want to serve the Lord, want to know Him, want to love Him. You are not perfect, certainly. There's a lot of flaws, certainly. But your heart cries to be like Jesus. You're not satisfied with being hostile to God like you were. You're not satisfied with status quo. You want to be like Him. That's the evidence that you're saved. But you're saved by faith alone. But not by faith that is alone. His work produces life in you. If there's really life in you and you're saved by faith, like James says, faith without works is dead. It's not a contradiction at all. You're saved by an act of your faith based on His works. And that grows within you and produces fruit spontaneously. And that's why Paul defined grace as this. 
He said in Titus, it teaches us, grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So saving faith is faith that commits to Jesus Christ. You see, the devil believes and trembles. Is the devil saved? He believes. The Bible says he believes. See, there are people who say that repentance... I'm serious. There are people who say repentance, in other words, turning from Christ, putting off the old, turning to Jesus, and embracing Christ as Savior, is work. And you're not saved by that. And so, all a person has to do is say, I'll raise my finger and say, I believe in Jesus. And nothing ever occurs in that person's life. You never see an ounce of fruit. He goes on living exactly the same, thinking exactly the same, never changes anything except he comes to church. Faith without works is dead. It's useless. If a man says that he knows God, but he doesn't walk in that light, he's a liar. The truth isn't in him. That's what John said. And so you're saved by his work, and it's that act of faith. Now I want you to notice a couple words as we close up. Or as we, I should say, move toward a close. I feel like Paul the Apostle sometimes. He would say, finally, in chapter 2 of a book when he had five chapters to write. And so he said in verse uh, 31, notice, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of your Bibles say believe in. It's very inaccurate. The word here and the literal translation is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's an important wording. In Greek, it's pistuo, that's believe. On is epi, pastuo epi. And pastuo means to cling to, to rely on, to adhere to, to cast yourself upon. Epi means upon, on. It's the same word of, a, or part word of your skin. It's called epidermis, layer upon layer. And so the word means to cast yourself and commit yourself totally upon Jesus, to lean on Him, to rest on Him. As some people say, Christianity is a crutch. No, it's not. According to this definition, it's a stretcher. You don't kind of go like this and walk your own way and kind of hold on Jesus. You just kind of lay right down. And you rest on Him. And that's my response. Anyone who says, it's a crutch. No, it's not. I just kind of lay down fully on Him and He carries me through. <laughs> Commit yourself completely and totally to. And notice their response. He didn't say, believe in, cast yourself upon a church ordinance like baptism. Cast yourself, rely upon a preacher. No, because those things may change, but Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the only one that never changes and that is good to His Word to the very end. And the evidence of that is in verse uh, 32. They spoke the Word of the Lord to Him and to all who were in His house. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, uh, the same stripes He inflicted. No doubt. And immediately he and all of his family were baptized. And when he had brought them into the house, he set food before them. And he rejoiced, having believed in God, with all of his household. So there was evidence. He was saved by faith just by believing. And what did he do? He got up and washed. Works were being produced in him automatically. He wasn't saved by washing stripes and giving him food. But that love, that responsiveness was there. The works were already being produced because of his faith. And you know, that's an important little lesson here. We have a responsibility, all of us, to cleanse the wounds that we have created. And I mean that not only physically, but very spiritually. Have you created a wound? It's your responsibility to clean it. 
as you respond to Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ. It's easy to inflict a wound. But then you clean up after it as evidence that you know Him. In verse 35, And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers, saying, Let these men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But this always has interested me. Paul said to them, They've beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. You think, come on, Paul, don't be so prideful. Just go. But he had a reason for it. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. They came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. There was a law, and Paul was a Roman citizen. If you were a Roman citizen, there was a text called the Lex Julia within Roman law that said if you were a Roman citizen, it was unlawful to be bound or beaten by a magistrate. Both happened to Paul. And so he claimed his Roman right. And any Roman, all he had to say was, Sivius Romanus Sum, I am a Roman citizen. And he could prove it. If he had been beaten or he had been bound by a magistrate, there's a heavy penalty that would be fined upon that magistrate, even death. And so they pleaded with him, please, this is my job and my neck. Just get out of town. But it says, uh, they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison, entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them. And then they departed. I don't think that Paul was just trying to make up a stir. I think what he was trying to do is avoid suspicion for the church. You see, if he was to leave secretly and get out of town, questions would be floating around and give people a chance to talk. Hey, what happened? These people were arrested. Well, what did they do? Were they criminals? Well, they're connected to these people called Christians. Well, what's wrong with these Christians? They kind of had to sneak out of town, didn't they? And so Paul wanted to clear the integrity of the church by not giving in to these pleas by not giving in to these Romans who are trying to twist them out. And so he said, no way. It's against the law. I'm a Roman citizen. You beat me uncondemned, pal. You tell the magistrates, you tell the bigwigs to come down and get us out. And so they said, please leave. Probably apologize to them. They went back to the church, and uh, then they left. Summing up this chapter, three different people, different backgrounds, the gospel appealed to each one of them, the same. It offered change. It offered a brand new start. Jesus offered being born again to each one. One of the things that always comforts me about the gospel is its universal appeal. Something that's different. I've gone to India and I've seen Hindu, I've not Hindu, I've seen Indian Christians. Their culture is basically the same. They look kind of the same. They sit on a dirt floor and they bang a drum. They don't have worship groups. They haven't been westernized. Nor does the church say, nor should it say, if you want to be a Christian, you have to dress like a Western person because Christianity came from the East anyway. But I see that it's in every culture, adapted to the culture, but never compromising the gospel. And yet with so many other religions, it's different, isn't it? Uh, for instance, take a Sikh. If you want to become a Sikh, you have to dress like the people in the East. You have to wear the five things that are demanded by the Sikh religion. You have to look like them, wear your hair a certain way. You have to adapt to a whole other culture instead of embracing the teaching to be changed by it. It has no power. And so it imposes outward regulations. But Christianity can change any person anywhere at any time. It has a universal 
appeal. And I want to get back to, in closing, that whole idea of the potter working a work on the clay, on his potter's wheel. I want you to be able to walk away tonight believing that God has a plan for you. A lot of times we think, God forgot about me. He's working in the lives of everybody else around me. They're being used by God. God's speaking to them in His Word. He forgot about me. No, yes. He's working a work on you. The Bible says in Ephesians, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. God has begun something in you. Perhaps you can relate to Lydia, a woman who was saved, a single woman, a professional woman, God saved her and changed her. Perhaps you can relate to the demon-possessed slave girl. Perhaps you had a really wild, radical background as a rebel. Or perhaps you can relate to the Philippian jailer. You had a fearful experience and you had a dramatic conversion. But the Bible says, I am persuaded, I'm confident, that he who has begun a good work in you will continue to perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. What God begins, he always finishes. God's begun something in you and He won't leave off until He's finished. That should comfort you. It really should. You might say, yeah, but I'm too stubborn. Yeah? God can match you. He really can, folks. There's no one so stubborn that God can't handle. Case in point, Jonah. I'm going to run away from God. Great, I'll prepare a whale to swallow you. I'll break you. And God can tackle anybody. And even in your stubbornness and even in your naivete and even whatever, God is big enough to work you into the image He wants you to be. Certain things about a pot being on a potter's wheel, being created into an image. First of all, the potter has absolute power over the clay. He can do whatever he wants to with it. The clay can't look up and say, Hey, why'd you make me into a spittoon? I want to be a coffee cup. Well, you're going to serve a purpose. A very important purpose. And God has made you whatever He wanted you to be, whether a saucer, a cup, a big vessel. I won't say spittoon. God has made you a vessel for His glory. You can't pick and choose where you want to be in the body. He's made you what He wants you to be. Secondly, a pot is made out of common dirt. But a potter sees great potential in that dirt. I'm very comforted by that. Because I'm, I've been created out of common dirt. A common person just like you. But God is able to look at that lump of clay and say, it can become something. doesn't look like much now. But you see, potters think differently than you or I. You went into a potter's uh, gallery and you'd see a big lump of clay and you think, who wants that? But the potter doesn't see the lump of clay. He sees the finished product in his mind. He has vision. He looks at that clay and sees a beautiful pot, painted, used, expensive. And God looks at your life that way. You might look at your life tonight and think, this is it. There's nothing here. But God sees what you can become. Thirdly, every vessel on a potter's wheel is meant to display the personality and creativity of the potter. 
Have you gone around to some of the places here in New Mexico and they show you different pottery and you think, oh, that's Acoma Pueblo. You can see, look at the personality in the pot. Or, oh, that's Zuni. That comes from here. That comes from there. And so God, when He creates His pottery, you are to reflect His personality. And fourthly, the wheel that God puts that pot on, the speed with which it turns, and the pressure of the hand all make for a useful pot and determine the shape. And I take that to mean the circumstances that occur in your life. Sometimes you feel the pressure. That hurts God. It's a painful circumstance. Yeah, but it's the thumb of the potter pushing you in to make you beautiful. I'm sure if a clay pot had a mouth, he would scream as the potter went, pressed him and stretched him. But it's those circumstances that make for something beautiful. Don't resist. Say, have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. I am the potter, thou art the clay. Make me and mold me after thy will while I am waiting, yielded and still. Let's stand. We'll sing that together. If you don't remember it, you'll catch on quick. You should. It's a good old song of the church. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter. I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yielded and still. Everybody together. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter. I am the clay. Mold me and make me after Thy will while I am waiting, yielded and still. Lord, do Your thing in our lives. We trust You. Thank You, Lord, that You are committed to making us like Jesus. Have Your own way with us, Lord. And we'll be careful to trust you and to give you praise. Because Father knows best. In Jesus' name, amen.